Welcome to Building Teams with Teams & Co, where we explore how leaders can empower their teams, achieve ambitious strategies, and deliver an exceptional customer experience. Views expressed by guests are their own and may not reflect the views of Teams & Co. everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Building Teams with Teams & Co. Mike and I are super excited to welcome John Jones, co-founder and CEO of Anthroware, to this week's episode. Hey, John. How you doing? Good. How's everybody? Good, well. good. John, doing it's good, well. good to see you. Thanks for joining the podcast. Of course. Anytime. So, John, what we like to start off with a little bit is, uh, obviously, we've known each other for a couple of years, uh, met through networking uh, in the Asheville, North Carolina area. But why don't you give our listeners just a little bit of background about you, about Anthroware, just so we can kind of set, set our right foot off and uh, make sure everybody knows uh, a little bit more about you. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. I think every time Tracy, you and I talk, I, I feel like I learned so much. So I'm very excited to be on your podcast and have, have listened to a few episodes. So I feel like uh, I have a lot to live up to with the type of guests that you, you guys have. So a little bit about me and Anthroware. My background, it, it started out in hard science. You know, I, my first job out of grad school was a was a scientist. And I got really obsessed with computers, actually, because I was working in a corporate lab. And I realized that all the freedom I had in the academic world to experiment was all of a sudden very structured. And with a laptop, if you knew how to code, you could build everything you want. You had it. You could buy a lab for a couple of thousand bucks and be super creative. And, and I think that my my education and the background around science has really sort of shaped how we do things from a experimentation perspective at Anthroware. But that was that was really a pivotal a pivotal moment for me is just realizing that I could go buy a lab and build whatever I want with a computer. And so I quit that job to work for an, a big consulting company writing software to gain experience. And then very shortly after that, you know, met my business partner there and we started Anthroware because we just really wanted to build things, quote unquote, the right way, which is a super subjective kind of silly chip to have on your shoulder. But it is a, it is a driving force. So yeah, fast forward, Anthroware was born. We very quickly invested in design and design thinking. And then, you know, a couple of years in realized that we were talking ourselves out of a lot of business because mm -hmm. we didn't believe in, it's like, hey, this, this, have you, have you really thought this through? You know, you're going to spend a lot of money here and, you know, it's very hard to see a return and kind of the light bulb coming on then that we were doing very strategic type consulting around the company's roadmap. And, you know, they're trying to solve a problem where they know they have a pain point and they, they might know, they might have even valued it. You know, I'm bleeding out on the floor. I need a tourniquet and morphine, but they don't know how to solve the problem. And so when we, when we started thinking about it that way, the firm really changed into this very full cycle, very comprehensive product studio where we are pressure testing ideas. We are doing like almost commercialization experimentation, you know, for, for, for new products in the pre-market. We're designing and building apps and platforms for, you know, healthcare and insurance and, you know, banking and let's see now property tech and bees. We're building a, an app for bees and beekeepers. So we're designing and building things. And then now we're also, you know, going, you know, to market with them and, and developing full on go to market strategies. And then, and then really the really exciting thing with that is we're using the same research institution that we use to build the products well to achieve product market fit. And now once these products are in the market, either within a company, you know, as a B2B type solution or a direct to consumer type solution, 
we've got a feedback loop where we're understanding like, well, hey, if we built this feature, we would open up this much more market. Or, you know, maybe your sales process stinks and, you know, or your onboarding process stinks and you have poor lifetime value or you can increase your win rate. So we're very scientific method, run an experiment, design thinking, human-centered design focused, full spectrum product studio now. So it's been kind of a fun journey over the last eight years. That's awesome. And it, and it sounds like you do a really good job of kind of meeting the customer. And one of the things that struck me about our first conversation, and I'll get your saying incorrect, so I'll kind of put it in broad terms for our audience. But one of the things that I really was impressed by was a little bit of what you were just alluding to, which is you and the team at Anthroware don't just build standard kind of solutions, right? You don't have this cookie cutter approach that says, oh, everybody needs an app or everybody needs X or Y. What you really try to do is solve that problem and up their game, so to speak, and provide that extra level of value. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that with our customers. One of the things we often speak about is knowing your customer, knowing the value you're going to provide to your customer. And that's a big pillar for us. And it's where everything starts. So that really resonates with us. And, and we'd just love to hear you speak more about how you how you manage those conversations and, and how you help to deliver the most possible value, not just like a set solution? That's a really great question. I'll do my best. It is something we deeply care about. And I think business people can get real jargony too. And I think removing some of that jargon is actually is actually super helpful to meeting people where they are. As a professional services firm, when we get hired, there there is some kind of deficiency. You know, there is an outcome that our partner wants. They have that problem. And it's a big problem. You know, if they just have a vitamin problem, you know, if they, you know, the vitamin and it's like the vitamin versus Advil versus morphine. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I say Uh morphine, but you know, if you run out of vitamins one night, are you going to stop brushing your teeth, run out right then and go buy more vitamins? No, you know, so if it's a big enough problem and it's an active problem, then the conversations that we have are around understanding the cost of doing nothing which is a competitor that I think a lot of professional services firms don't understand well enough, they'll lose to just the client not doing anything for the potential client. So you have to value the problem and the opportunity, which are different. There are a lot of quote unquote digital transformation projects that fix the risks, but don't address the opportunity. But it's really about understanding, hey, is this an, is this an active problem or is it a passive problem where they're, you know, it's not a big enough deal for them to solve it? Is it a latent problem where I just told you something you didn't know and now all of a sudden you're educated to this problem that you have and now you want to fix it? Or is it a problem where you can totally envision the solution and you just need somebody to execute it, which is not really a design problem. It's more like pouring concrete. So we have to determine like what type of problem it is and whether or not they even value what we do because you're not a good partner to everybody. It has to be an outcome that they want you have the capacity to do it and they have a deficiency that you fit in like a key. And so a lot of times when we're looking at partners, if they've already invested in UX designers in-house, they're already paying salaries, that kind of thing, then a lot of that education, you know, for what we do and why they would value us is already done. But they've got a they've got a time crunch or they're, you know, they're used to doing sort of incremental innovation and they do that really well, but they're facing some sort of big, big step up. And they need some extra help or some outside perspective or something like that. I mean, really, professional services, you, the best you can do is say, like, this is the process we believe in. This is why we think it's good. This is what we think you're dealing with. And this is how we do it. And they can buy it or not. There's really no hard sell because 
I always say professional services are bought, not sold. I heard that from a mentor a long time ago, and, and it's really stuck with me. You either fit or you don't. So I think looking for those clients that are already investing in trying to solve some of those issues and just maybe need some help moves that conversation along a lot faster. Did that answer mm -hmm. your question? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks like Mike has a question, so I'm, I'm holding for him. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I was just going to ask. It sounds like the right fit for you, John, oftentimes is those firms that aren't just looking for an extra set of hands, but are looking for somebody to help them think through maybe a, a more disruptive innovation or to diagnose a problem they might might not even know that they have, or they're aware that something's wrong, but they're not sure what exactly it is. Is that part of the exploration as you're finding the right fit for partners where you will filter some out on your end? Yeah, I think everybody should be filtering out where you're not a good fit. We get hired at the end of the day because we de-risk the projects. Hiring an outside consultancy that's done this you know, 50 times, it de-risks the project. So kind of back to that pouring concrete example, by the time you get to pouring concrete, like you're pouring footers for a house, it would be foolish to go just start pouring concrete. A lot of work has been done before you get there. Mm -hmm. And so the solution has been designed, you know, decoupling design from just moving pixels to make a screen look beautiful. You're designing a solution when you're building blueprint for the house or deciding even how many rooms it needs, does it need a garage? Where is that all laid out? You don't start building a house without a design. So when the concrete's being poured, you can put extreme parameters around that. Like that is a requirement now that you can write. They're going to be placed like this. They're going to be this deep. You're going to pour exactly this much concrete. It's going to take exactly this much time to let it set. And the outcome is fixed. Whether or not you accomplished it or not is easy to understand. When you know that, hey, I need a house and I've got this weird, funky piece of land and I know that I need a house but I don't know what it looks like yet. You call an architect. You don't just start pouring concrete. Yeah. And so if you if we come across a client that just wants to pour concrete, then if we push them through our entire process, which is, I mean, it is, we look for long-term partners, right? So as I'm sure you do as well. So it's just as much as much about them deciding whether or not we fit their needs, that they would want to work with us for months or years as it is us saying, hey, are these people that, that would value us, that we trust, that we want to hang out with and be with for months or years? And if we push that partner through that just needs a concrete pour all the way to the end of our sales process, they won't buy us anyway hmm. because they're going to be more price sensitive, not outcome-based because they already have the outcome that they need. They just need somebody to execute on it. So you know, I think just knowing who you are as a, as a firm, what makes your, your team tick, what gets them excited it really helps sort of give you focus with where you are the best team player with a partner. Because when you find that out, then the relationship you have is different, better. They trust you. They're a trusted guide, right? A problem comes up and it will. And it, you're like, how might we, you know, together? I'm never going to be the expert in your business. It's your business. I'm, in, I'm the expert in these other things. So how do we figure it out together? And that's so much healthier for everybody involved. Our team, you know, loves that so much more. Our partners, our longest term partners, we have that kind of relationship. We don't even have to talk about what the other type of relationship work looks like, right? Like everybody's been there and it sucks. So I think the more you know about yourself and where, where you are a good team player, the better it is for everybody. 
I think it's also a good lesson for all of our listeners, right? We hear this often from, you know, we work with organizations that are trying to scale and grow their business. And sometimes the the tendency there is to try to do it all, right? You're trying to boil the ocean. You're trying to offer everything to everybody. And that doesn't really allow you to provide the best quality to the people who you can deliver the best quality to, right? And so we have a similar situation at Teams Co., right? We work from, you know, figuring out what the customer value is, helping an organization set that strategy, like how do we solve this challenge, and then working with their teams to implement it. But if somebody came to us and said, hey, we don't want to do all three, we want to do just this one little piece, that's much more difficult because it's difficult on our team. It's also difficult on their team because to your point, you're kind of putting them through a process where maybe they're not sure of it and and they don't get as much value. So in those situations, we find it's it's really helpful to recommend them to somebody else, right? So if somebody came to us and said, hey, we need a new website, we don't build websites, right? So we'd say, oh, we don't do that, but we know this great firm that does much better exactly. fit. And then the customer's happy, right? We're still giving them value. We're giving them a different kind of value, which is you know referring them, but I, I, that totally resonates with me. It it's a It's a great way to make sure that you're working together. And the thing I love about it, which is the the other question I, I want to hear from you, because we often have to do this as well, right? We're a professional services firm, is you become part of the team. You're not actually part of the company, but you're part of the team and you're now delivering together. That's how we work. We we implement with our with our partners, our clients. And so how do you manage that, right? We get this question a lot from folks, which is like, oh, I'm hiring a firm or I'm part of a firm. How do I help build myself into their team? How do we align goals? So what does that look like at AnthroWare and, and how do you manage that kind of internal, external team setup? That's another really great question. Um, you know, we're doing a book club right now. We're going through Mike Montero, one of Mike Montero's books, and he has a quote in there. It's some, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like a, a vendor is the person that refills snacks in your break room. What you want as a partner. And I think a, a huge part of that is how you sell into that situation from the get-go. How you are treated is how you show up in the room. How you treat them and how you expect to be treated is is the same. It's the golden rule stuff. So on the one hand, there's sort of a, a set of guidelines that we follow from a sales process that are practical and pragmatic. You know, how important is this? And this doesn't work for everybody. This works for us. Um, how important is this project in the organization is one of our questions. If it's one of the top three problems that the organization is facing and the CEO cares about it, or maybe even the board board cares about it, we're not going to have any stakeholders swoop in that we didn't know about and undermine things, which is never the intention. But, you know, I think that language probably works. You know, if, it, if it's a top three problem for the organization, we're being hired as, as at a strategic level anyway. What we run into more is when we get, because we do a lot of stuff. I don't think we're trying to boil the ocean, but that was that was one of the concerns when we said, "Hey, we're going to add mar- are we really going to add marketing?" Mm. And the reason why we did is because most of the reason why we're good at marketing is because we built this amazing research engine inside the company, which is uh, honestly what drives our business model consulting, it's what drives our design, and it now it drives our marketing and our feedback loop right back to product. So it wasn't for us, it was something we could be excellent at that allowed us to control kind of that full cycle or be a, you know, a game time threat for our partners in that full cycle. And it, it, it just, it like makes sense. But back to my point, if we get hired in to build an app, 
the biggest danger that we face is getting pigeonholed as the app developer. Mm. So like my recommendation, if there, if there are any like professional services firms listening to this, one thing to think about is your level of call into the organization. Like who are you talking to? If you're talking to a, you know, mid-level director and you get hired to build an app in our case, and then that same client has a really amazing opportunity that we would be perfect for that's different or more strategic somewhere, then you might be pigeonholed as the app guy. If your call-in is to the C-suite and they know you have all these capabilities, but you're able to kind of crack that bundle a little bit and say, okay, well, yeah, we can help. We can fit in right here. And part of your account plan is that we're actually going to build a, a roadmap for this that at a strategic level that so we can understand your company's goals. So you're communicating at a much different you know, level depending on who you talk to. And for us, the call-in has to be really high. And then that that's what sort of de-risks that situation around sort of how they value us and how they view us, how we become a, a trusted guide versus just, just a vendor. But then it's consistency in the team. I mean, you don't switch your team a lot. You give them dedicated resources. And, and the reason why that works is because for us, we, we care about mission alignment. There's something in your mission or some aspect of the problem that you're solving that we is it is especially endearing to us, then our team gets excited about that. And we're lucky enough to have some partners where we get really, really excited about what they're doing. And it, it's, it feels just like doing anything else. Working with them feels like working for ourselves. So it's really cool. John, how did you go through the process of understanding that distinctly your role, the, the role of Anthroware? It, it sounds like there's a, a lot of introspection that went into discerning, are we a vendor or are we a strategic guide? We want to work with the C-suite on a top three strategic problem. And in fact, we view an engagement where we may just be an execution partner. That's not really our sweet spot, but it is for a lot of firms. So how did you guys go through the process of understanding this is who we are, this is our identity, and this is how we want to work with, with our partners? Well, so this is eight years old. A lot of thinking has gone into this. Eight years from now, I'll probably give a completely different answer. We might be a completely different firm. Okay. I think that entrepreneurs get really hung up on what they want, just like everybody, versus what the market is asking for. Yeah. And so right now, the world appears to be asking for Anthroware to be a wisdom firm. And I think in the world of professional services, there's really three buckets that that I've heard in my circles. And you know, there's like an intellect firm where it's a bunch of PhDs in a room that are solving problems that nobody's ever solved. We're not that. There's, uh, you know, a wisdom firm where, where you know, you're getting asked for case studies quite often. Maybe you're talking to references. How have you helped other people in the past? And you're getting solved because or hired because you've been there, done that. And then there's like a method firm where they, you know, intellect and, and wisdom firms, you're really, you're doing a lot of critical thinking. You're not getting hired to produce a data point. You're getting hired to produce insight. Mm -hmm. You're getting hired for the critical thinking. With a method firm, and there's nothing wrong with any of these types of firms. Uh, with a method firm, you're generally very price sensitive, and you you're able to hire instead of hiring a bunch of seniors, you know, at a, at a at a wisdom firm. You've got this process or method in place that allows you to hire junior level people and train them correctly. And then be very price competitive in sort mm -hmm. of a, a more commoditized manner. So when 
there's a lot of signs that, you know, from just from our history that points to where we want to go and where projects that we're going to find turn frustrating and or clients that we thought would be a great idea to take on and they weren't. Not that they're a bad client, but it's just there's a mismatch in what we're what we've been talking about, right? And when the like back to the pouring concrete versus architect thing, there are plenty of people that love pouring concrete and it's an awesome job. And so that's where I think a lot of those method firms come in. But where like the way that we talk about product, people are expecting us to raise our hand and push back and not just be yes people but to to really help form the solution. So I would say that like the, the most concise answer I would give is just like based on the type of firms that need us, they expect us to be a wisdom firm, not a method firm. Yeah. And that has just kind of hard fought lessons from what works and what doesn't. And now having that framework in my mind and that clarity, it's like, well, oh, obviously we're not a method firm. <laughs> Why would we take on that job? They need somebody that can just execute on what they want. They've already got a clear vision for what the solution looks like, and it's probably fine. They don't need our help. And if we ask too many questions and we push back too much, it's the opposite effect of what we want. So it just doesn't work as well. Well, it sounds like to me, John, the the thing that's really resonating with me and that I keep coming back to as you as you speak through that is, you know, there's a lot of product companies out there that actually make a tangible product, right? So Anthroware, Teams & Co, we're more service kind of oriented firms, right? We provide a service. Obviously, at the end of the day, you and your firm actually help develop a product as well. But that process is always really iterative for organizations, right? You hear a lot about innovation and roadmaps and you know product innovation and product iteration and constantly improving your product. What I love about what you're talking about with AnthroAware is you all are doing that with your service, right? So maybe when you started eight years ago, you had a certain expectation and then you did something and you learned and then you met with another client and you learned and you're constantly kind of iterating and innovating within your model to say, hey, yeah, sometimes those things didn't match up, right? We've all been there. We've bought something at a store where we're like, oh, that wasn't what I was expecting. Or you get pleasantly surprised and you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. That's awesome. But it happens to all of us, right? But with the services, it's, it is a longer term relationship. So you kind of have to figure those things out. And and I just love hearing you speak about it because it sounds like you and the team are being very diligent around, okay, let's take our learnings, let's take our research and keep picking those clients that are closer and closer to where we provide the most value. And, and that just seems like it'd be really fun for you and your team because you're working on super exciting projects that align with your mission, align with their mission and strategy. And, and it seems like it'd be a really engaging uh, environment when you're when you're in one of those rooms. <laughs> I, I'm I'm lucky enough to work with a bunch of people that deeply care. They're rigorous in their work, and we all constantly try to get better. And that is the only environment that I want to work in. It is iterative, and I hope I hope it always is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to have it all figured out. No, I, I I was struck by a really similar thing, and. We talk a lot about learning from our customers and understanding, well, what sort of problems do different people need solved? And that's true, whether it's a direct-to-consumer product company, whether it's a services company, whoever our organizations are serving, we need to understand our customers. The other thing it sounds like you've got a great grasp of, John, and your team does, is a strong understanding of who you are and what your core internal capabilities are. And so you based on that degree of introspection and I'm sure your own 
conversations that you guys have had on what's our strategy, what's our strategic plan, who do we want to serve, and how do we get there? You're able to find customers whose needs align really well with your internal capabilities. So that that's something else that that I I layer in there because Tracy, you and I talk so much on this podcast and other forums about learning about your customers. And yeah. I, I'd love to dig in a little bit, John, on on the methods that you guys use to to gain those those understandings about your own team. About our own team. Um yeah, I mean, so I think probably the the most unexpected answer I could give is uh through suffering. And you really learn the most when you're going through a pruning stage. Mm-hmm. And if you if you couple that with a couple of growth spurts, it's all cyclical, right? Business, you never, it's never a straight line going up and to the right. So um, you learn a lot. You learn the most at an individual level, and and probably at a team level, going through suffering, and then you change the most going through a growth spurt. And every time you get twice as refined in your thinking, you find that the stuff that was working before is not working anymore. And so you go, Hey, you know, you have to change things. And when you undergo change, that's when you realize whether or not you're outgrowing the company's outgrowing people or God forbid it's the other way around, right? Like your people are outgrowing your company. Well, not God forbid. I'm like the people that have left, uh, Anthroware for the last eight years are all very successful, amazing people. So, you know, being, being a step on that journey is, is a privilege as an employer. Uh, but that like, that's when those, um, splits tend to happen is when either you're changing things with, with your, your vision or your company or your processes or, or, you know, where you're headed that people don't agree with, or they, you know, it wasn't the same company that they wanted to work for five years ago or whatever. Like, so like, I think that you learn the most and you're, you, you tune in to sort of the core values of the people that you want to that you want to be around and work that work well in your environment when you go through periods of growth and suffering. And I'm actually I'm actually sort of a little bit triggered by the culture fit phrase because I like we're a product company, I don't want to hire a bunch of people that think exactly like I do. Mm-hmm. So just hiring for direct culture fit it would be would just be hiring a bunch of people that think like we already think. And so we've internally kind of changed that narrative to the core values fit. And so we've got a few things that that are kind of boundary conditions. If you're not striving to be a very humble person, you're going to clash with our team and likely our partners. Because if you have to be the smartest person in the room, um, we're all going to hate working with you. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So like we know that hiring people that have a sense of humility is really, really important. And there's plenty of others, but that type of clarity has come from sort of the waxing and waning of the business and how that, how those pressures either cause leadership decisions to be made uh, and that people don't like um, or they love. And, and then also just those, those personal growth periods of going through suffering. Yeah. And it, I, I think those parts are the parts none of us want to go through, right? Like there's uh, you know, those, those parts where we're all kind of, you know, in that kind of common struggle, but it sounds like you and your team do a good job of learning from it and trying to decrease those friction points going ahead, right? So you go through a period where, hey, this isn't ideal. It's been kind of tough. But now we're going to learn from that and take those friction points out of the way. So maybe the next time we don't go through those. We might go through some more, right? To your point, 
businesses up and yep. down and there might be a whole whole new set of challenges but that's what we talk to teams about a lot right you you want to be agile in the way of not the development kind of term agile but as a team you want to be able to have that resilience to respond and say hey okay we've been through a tough time together before this might not look exactly like that but we got we got through it once and we can get through it again and how do we do that together versus every person for themselves and I just, you know, I need to get, I need to get myself kind of taken care of versus the team being taken care of. And and you have to be really open to see the people that in those moments are ready and chomping at the bit to rise above their, their current position. Yeah. And we've always seen that in, in, in times of, you know, to kind of transition, but you have to give that space. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's a painful thing. It's hard to talk about, but everybody's every business goes through it, and it you come out you come out better. Now it's a real conversation, and I think it's questions we get often too, right? Uh, obviously, everybody would always love a business to be smooth sailing and a perfect picture of entrepreneurship, like everything is successful all the time. But I think true leaders, to your point, real leaders kind of step up in those times where the team is struggling, and they say, "Hey." How do I help, even if I'm not the formal manager of this team, how can I be an individual leader and help us all kind of get through this? What can I do to improve our collective process? Where can I step up or where can I step back, right? To your point, you know, there are some times that as a leader, you have to be like, okay, I have to kind of step back a little bit and lead from behind to allow my team to kind of, you know, coalesce in the in the ways that they need to and kind of take ownership around these things. and. I think it's a valuable lesson for leaders in terms of okay, you know, hopefully those hopefully those struggle points will be short. <laughs> yeah. But preparing the team for them and having a having a common approach and a common plan is is really valuable and important because you know, it allows you to enjoy the success a little bit more, right? Uh you're like, "Oh, okay, we all got through this thing together." It's it's kind of a you'll you'll laugh at this and I'll I'll do this shout out for Jeff uh, Kaplan who was on the show before. Uh, which obviously I know you're a good friend of Jeff's and know him, but he was talking about like the success of a team is so much more fulfilling, right? It's like that whole like mosh pit on the world series, like everybody's running and you were all running and celebrating together because you did have some lows, right? There were some games you lost and it was a hard, long season and you had this collective kind of, so to speak, battle together. And now you've overcome that and you've won. And that, that, that's what we love about teams too, right? Individual wins are fun. Those team wins, I mean, we just, we think you can't beat them. <laughs> it feels good. Yeah. And, and, you know, what we're getting now um, is, is this sort of underdog mentality at Anthroware where, you know, joining the team now is akin to, you know, jumping on board the pirate ship and sailing it into the yacht club. Um <laughs> And, and and that's there's some rallying points too, just on the way up, right? Like you know, our clients are are getting more and more sophisticated, and and the type of work we're being asked to do is more and more in line with what we were talking about earlier. And you know, what makes you know, it's all a journey. It doesn't just start at one point. It's like, oh, this is exact. I, I'm just going to say this now, and because I said it on Tracy's podcast, now all of our clients are perfect. <laughs> um, 
it doesn't work that way. It's a journey. That's what, is what you, happens on the Teams & Co. podcast. If you say it, it totally comes true. That's that's what we like to believe. <laughs> that, that's why I'm here. Um, I'm, I'm going to hang up and just sit beside my phone and wait for it to start ringing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so important to know where you're going and, and realize that it's aspirational at the same time because it's frustrating to, be, to hear uh, to hear me talk all the time about our ICP or where we're, you know, our goals and where we're headed. And then if, if that's not reflected by reality a hundred percent and you don't have the right attitude about it, it's like, well, then why did we take this client? It's like, well, that client slipped through. We tried, you know, we're not going to get them all, but that lighthouse, you know, that, that sort of aspirational that you never actually get to because you hit the rocks, right? Knowing where you're going and, and being able to make sure that you're, you can, you're comparing your actions to that you know, that's what gives you sort of a litmus with the team to say, hey, you know, we're imperfect. You're following a bunch of imperfect leaders. We're making mistakes. We're doing the best we can to to serve you and listen. And this is where we think we're going. And here's how these decisions align with that. And you've got to just sort of lay it all out there because we're, you know, a very small company. There's no need for anything but transparency. So there's, you know, we, we just, we talk about, we talk about where, where this is going a lot and, and just, you know, we try, we're doing a better job sort of allowing for the types of, you know, conversations that are just really meaningful to, to people. But, you know, I think that's maybe advice that I would give myself five years ago is to listen more to that kind of stuff. Yeah. How do you, how do you set that lighthouse when you set the strategic direction for the firm? How do you guys, how do you guys do that? Is that a leadership decision? Is that a, do you engage different team members in in that conversation? Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's it's a lot easier to to poke at something if if you if you've got a picture to start with, right? Like if if you have a starting place already defined, it's easier to see issues with it or see things to get excited about. Mm-hmm. So I'll generally throw something out on paper. And then we talk about it as a leadership team. And then, you know, we, we share with the team and have, have a feedback session around that. And that goes with financial goals. It goes with, you know, any, any kind of, you know, cultural goals we have or, you know, wealth building within the team, you know, mm-hmm. anything like that. We have a, we actually have a five step process that we go through with our clients when it comes to a, like building like a winning product roadmap. And we generally drink our own Kool Aid with that. You know, we, we're looking at the risks and opportunities. We are, you know, prior, prioritizing things. You know, we're going through a lot of the same activities that we go through with our clients, kind of minus the discovery phase because we we kind of know uh, that part already. But but yeah, you know, I, I think it's something that we revisit yearly, and along with an analysis of what's working, what's not working, what's missing from a leadership team, and then we we actually set like one of the things that COVID did. Because it forced me to learn some online collaboration tools like I'd never learned them before. Yeah. And I was able to set up some mural boards so our whole team could participate in the same exercise we did as a leadership team. And so, you know, the leadership team is ultimately responsible for carrying the stuff out, but the voice of the team is is most certainly heard there. You know, when you talk about uh like it's doing it for us is easy, I would say, because we have really close collaborative stakeholders. And when it comes to goals, we're pretty aligned. It's amazing how aligned we are with the high level stuff. How we get there is where we argue and um, fight and stuff, but it's healthy, the healthy kind. One of the things we we did 
2019, kind of late 2019, maybe early 2019. I'm not real sure. We did this in the past. That's all that matters. <laughs> um, we, We're all on the same timeline, John. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. year was that? <laughs> um, last year, I really when people happened. say I'm missing a year, they're like, that year yeah. definitely happened and it was brutal, but um, we're not, we didn't miss it. Uh, but anyway, we, we, we're doing a, a sort of a refresh on our branding, which we're, un, we're undergoing again now because of, of some things that are shifting. Our ICP is shifting a little bit. And we opened up a lot of exercises to the whole team because branding is not really, it's not really saying, Hey, we, we're going to be that that sounds good. I want to be that. It's much more about interpreting who you already are and explaining that very clearly to your ideal customer. And one of those exercises, we asked the team, what Anthemware looks like in a year, three years or five years, that the silly sort of like that classic HR, what, where do you want to be in five years? You know, uh -huh. before we hire you, I hate that question. Um, but we asked that and the interesting thing was I'd, I'd, I'd written down what I thought, where I thought we were going to be in terms of like people revenue, um, you know, culture, like that kind of stuff. And when the team responded, their dream for what Anthroware could be was bigger than my own. And it blew me away. And um, we just, we're, we're currently doing a study right now where um, I'm asking this question to our team members where I say like, Okay, tough year, tough little bit. What does Anthemware look like in two or three years where your friends are jealous that you work here and that being here was the best career move of your life? And we're, get, we're getting responses that are, some of them are very practical. You know, I want to be able to work remotely from another country for six months out of the year. You know, it's just like a very black and white thing, which is okay, by the way. Um, person that asked that, that's fine. Um, <laughs> Some of them are very sort of hard to put your finger on, but really, really important. And more about the feel of the place. And we're at a, if you think about it right, like we can build the company and culture that people really want to work at. And it's up to us to do it. And it's not just up to leadership. It's up to the leadership has to open up to letting the whole team kind of really be a part of that. So that's been a really interesting survey um, as well, just to kind of get a pulse for for that. And it helps like that's obviously goes into setting our goals as a, as a firm where we want to be. So. John, I think it's, um, I, one, I love that you're answering questions on here. This is like the Q and a live with your team around the, the responses to the survey questions. So, uh, I feel like we're real time, uh, helping build a team here. This is great. Um, <laughs> but I think also what, what strikes me is there's a lot of organizations and we hear this a lot is like, how, how do we adjust you know, we've all had a really hard year, year and a half now, you know, our businesses have, you know, some businesses have grown quite quickly in that year and a half, because just based on the changing dynamics, things, you know, needed to, you know, ramp up for them. Uh, other businesses have obviously struggled and, and maybe their business has slowed down or they've had to lay people off. But overall, I think all businesses are kind of taking a step right now to say, okay, what's the next thing for us, right? Like, how do we build the next thing? How do we make sure we're successful in the future? You know, it sounds like you all at AnthroAware are doing a lot of research and kind of branding and kind of making sure you know who you are and how that comes to life in the world. But what are some of the other ways that you're 
kind of changing the way you think about the future, right? We hear a lot of organizations saying, I'm no longer ever making a five-year strategic plan ever again. Like five years is too long. I'm going to be going shorter, right? But we hear different things from different businesses. So are there are there things that you used to do as an organization and as a leader to say, hey, I think this is the best way to set our organization up for success. Now, knowing what you know and kind of all the agility we've all had to build in the last year and a half, are there new things that Anthroware is just kind of trying to put into practice to be more successful and more agile as you approach the future? Um, well, to back up for a minute, uh, a five-year strategic plan has been too long for a long time. Just throwing that out there. Business and the world moves faster than five-year increments. Uh, I think that, I, yeah, I think that, I think that over the past like 18 months, we have definitely been in kind of attack mode. Like this, this is an opportunity. Um, we don't want to go out and back into the cave and, and, uh, shrink away. We want to go really to, you know, take advantage of the opportunity as, as we can. And I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for a while. And, you know, especially, you know, you've got the big consulting firms like KPMG and BCG and Bain uh, on massive, massive hiring sprees. You've got one and a half trillion dollars in private equity. You've got two huge influxes of cash. Um, so we're having a, you know, an inflation conversation, obviously. Um, but where, like, where is that money going to be spent? Our, our, our current administration is probably going to do, you know, something else important one way or another around our environment or the economy that's going to stimulate a lot of entrepreneurial activity. I mean, like if you're not thinking of this as an opportunity, then I would suggest you call Tracy or call me and we'll talk you into it. It is an opportunity right now. So we're Anthroware, I think if anything else is just very bullish about, about that. I think it would be a little bit silly to say that our goals have completely changed that would mean that we've been bad at setting goals. You know, before the pandemic happened, we were still right on the cusp of a recession. We were absolutely due for one, still are. And so, you, like, you know, th those are the type of things that you need to be thinking about as a business owner anyway. So I don't think our plans have, have dramatically changed, you know, but I, I do think that we're, we, we learned a lot. We had an accelerated learning period over the past 18 months. The other thing I think is probably going to be on the front of everybody's mind is how personal work is. And it was personal before, like that hasn't changed either, but our resiliency tank is pretty low right now. I mean, just, it's going to take a while for that to build back up, even though the in the United States, at least the pressure's off quite a bit from a pandemic standpoint, we're kind of on the other side of that as far as, you know, how you know, most places are operating, but that, we have been depleted from a resiliency standpoint so much that it adds a lot of stress to everything else. And employee care, team care, we're, we're accelerating different benefits and stuff that, that we're providing, uh, you know, in, in, in an expanded way, uh, because that, that is going to continue to be very, very important. I'm interested in your perspective on sort of the job market. And obviously, like a lot of companies are, realizing that they can trust people to work remote just fine, uh, which is so funny to me. Um, you didn't know that before? Yeah. Do you not trust your people? <laughs> um, 
but that but it, it is changing things and our market is very unstable right now because it's like normalizing towards the larger market in terms of like salaries and stuff like that instead of the other way around which is a little bit weird so i, I think there's a lot of turmoil and you, you you know i don't know i don't have a crystal ball um but at some level i think if you have a good plan you're just going to plug away and do do the activities that you know work for you and try to get better at them yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think that there's been a lot of, I, I really love what you're saying about the team. I think, um, you know, we always focus on teams and I think the organizations that are going to be successful are recognizing, hey, the way that we were doing it before may not have been, you know, what we're doing now, right? But I think there's new expectations from people. This has been an incredibly difficult 18 months. To your point, it's still incredibly difficult in a lot of places around the world. Um, and I think organizations recognizing that, trying to support their teams in a way that, you know, obviously businesses, you know, need people to work. But to your point, I'm, I was always very surprised. I've, I've worked from home from basically the beginning of my career. I used to, I started off my career as a, as a sales rep in a territory. And so I never worked at headquarters. And so this whole idea that team members can't be productive if they're not directly in an office with each other is is a very foreign concept to me. Uh, I realize my career may be unique in that I've mostly worked outside of a headquarters. There's only been a few times in my career I've worked at a headquarters. But I do think that there's a a real recognition by organizations that they need to be able to empower their teams and give them the resources to be successful no matter where they're working, right? And so that for us is a huge opportunity in terms of being able to help organizations build those processes, build those resources. But I think also to your point, one of the things that we're seeing uh, a lot of you know growing businesses doing is you know shifting their tact. Maybe to your point, maybe they're not doing the exact same thing they said they were going to be doing, but they are able to say, "Hey, a customer need has changed in this way, and we're going to adjust to that, and we're going to be able to serve our customers even better." And you've seen this in really obvious ways uh, in the last eighteen months, right? Curbside, you know, pickups, a lot more delivery services. But you've also seen it in nuanced ways where people are maybe building in features to products or tech products that they have to make those things easier for people. And so I think that we're going to continue to see that shift where people first, whether it's from an employee standpoint and a team standpoint or from a product standpoint, has become a really big focus. Not that it wasn't before, but I think it like people first and customer first is taking on a whole new meaning given the pressures that we've all we've all experienced this year. So I'm intrigued to see kind of how we all come together. But that's the thing that I've been most, you know, uh, I I guess I'll say pleasantly surprised just because I'm lacking a better term. I think the ability for organizations to come together to innovate in a critical time for our society as a global community is really impressive to me, right? Whether it's kind of at the, you know, again, the obvious level of kind of healthcare companies and pharmaceutical companies working together to create these vaccines very quickly, or even at an organizational level below that or in different industries, just people really working together to say, hey, we've got some common challenges. And while we didn't used to work with these other organizations, it's really exciting. Like I hear more and more people saying they're referring customers to different clients or different uh, providers, right? I think there's just this new level of collaboration between businesses to help everybody kind of get to the next level that I'm super excited about. And I'm really intrigued about where it goes. So I think that's going to be something we continue to see a lot more partnerships, a lot more co-innovations, 
Um, and so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to 2021 to see how that, to see how that plays out, but I'll let, I'll let Mike add his thoughts as well. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think a lot of this conversation filters back to a couple of things, John, that you had mentioned earlier. One is having values alignment with the people that you bring onto your team. So the fact that it's a surprise for so many organizations that they can trust their people, I'm surprised that you're surprised, right? Like that, that should have been something that you're, you're hiring for people that have enough alignment from a values perspective to say, yes, we can trust this person to get the job done regardless. You know, they don't need a babysitter. They're, they're an adult. They don't need their boss looking over their shoulder. You know, I'm, I'm surprised that you're surprised. Um, you know, you'd think that you have some, filters and a hiring process to, to filter those people out. And then another thing that jumped out to me was the conversation on humility earlier. And I've got Anthroware's site up on my other screen and I'm seeing the cycle through on the we believe statements. And I think that those are really powerful and, and particularly the, the humility to sort of infiltrate a, a lot of ways. You know, John, you were speaking earlier about seeking the feedback of employees in understanding like what is our strategic direction and not you know not giving them a totally blank target providing some direction there but then having the humility as a leadership team to listen to the feedback of your team i think is really cool having the humility tracy to some of the points that you're making to respond to the market in different ways and say i, I don't i'm not always right my view of the world and where i think we need to go you know what that can change if it needs to based on you know the the market based on what we're hearing from customers and John I know that you're you've invested and Anthroware's invested tremendously in this big research you know research division or research tool um so I it, that wasn't a direct correlation to what we were talking about before I'm just super interested and curious to hear what you know more about that and and sort of your guys' differentiator as you look at what enables you to be the more strategic partner as opposed to execution pair of hands? Uh, I love that question. Um, I'm super passionate about it. So I'll, I'll try to keep it, keep it down. <clears throat> <laughs> no, don't keep it down. Keep it up. Um, <laughs> I'll be the one screaming into the podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think there's a couple of dots to connect here when you're talking about the, the market and you're talking about change and then you're talking about research because your customers didn't just change their behavior due to the pandemic that we've, that we've just been through and are kind of on the tail end of, they didn't just like snap back to who they were before. They've likely changed forever. And so many businesses are guessing at who those customers are now. They don't know them anymore. It's insane. And so when you have, a an organization that's but any organization that's focused on human centered design anthropology is in the name of our company for a reason you're studying people to figure out what really moves the needle for that individual and we call this we call this bottom up value creation and if you solve the problem for that individual then number 1 are they going to buy it number 2 do they use it as expected and number 3 does it have the intended outcome? That is product market fit demystified. You can put metrics on it. It is not magic pulling a cat out of a hat or whatever. It is literally something you can measure. 
And so our, our, our research function that I talk about at Anthroware is a cross between we're using user experience researchers and designers to uncover business outcomes and business use cases. Hmm. So when we go into a project or if we're doing this ourselves, we're, you know, there's an element of research that could be a survey, which is what a lot of people think of. And then there's an element of it where it's just really deep one-on-one insights. Mm-hmm. So whether whether this is a like a win loss study, which we're doing, you know, we're doing one of those for a big company in the sales enablement space right now, or it's a you know a B two B application where you know you're selling to a buyer, but the buyer isn't the person that has to use the software. So like literally, you you could buy a piece of software or build a piece of software. And meet the needs of the organization perfectly. But if you're not meeting the needs of the individuals that have to use it, they're going to use spreadsheets or whatever other workaround they, they can to be outside of the system. And guess what? All that efficiency gain that you paid for goes out the window. Mm-hmm. And all, like all these projects are tied to like direct line tied to some outcome for our, our customers, our partners. So in the case of a digital transformation project, maybe it's capacity. Maybe I've got a low margin, high volume business, and it takes a lot of headcount. And I have all these inefficient processes. They don't have to be paper. Like the whole digital transformation to get rid of your paper processes. I mean, that was 10 years ago. What we're dealing with now is the crappy digital transformation projects that happened then that are just digitizing a process. We're not researching what actually, like, what is the job to be done? Hmm. Forget about the way you've always done it. What's the outcome you're trying to get to? Which parts of that can we automate? Which parts of that can we make more human? For the past 30 years, we've been using software and computers just to automate things. We're we're realizing now, thank God, that there's aspects of this where we we need to make things a little bit more human again. If my CRM was, it's totally smart enough to know, like, Hey, tomorrow's trade. Not, I'm guessing tomorrow's not really your birthday, Tracy. <laughs> no, it's not. But that would have been awesome if it was. <laughs> but let's say it's like tomorrow's Tracy's birthday, and my my CRM is going to automatically send out a, a birthday message. We've got great AI because it's 2021, and it can even sound like me. But if that happens automatically, and I don't know it's Tracy's birthday, and we we get on this call, or you know, I, I see her tomorrow or whatever, and she's like, "Thanks for the birthday message." That's a failure of technology. What we should have done is added friction into the system, not automated it to alert me, hey, tomorrow's Tracy's birthday. I've made this great message. You can send it or you can customize it or you can call her or whatever. But I need to know. I mean, so that's just one instance of sort of slowing that back down. So there are places in, in digital transformation processes where you can take huge chunks of work that should be done by a computer off of a human being's plate. And there's also places where you can humanize that experience and make it enjoyable. And if you do that, then they use it time and time again. Then all of a sudden, the same 50 people in that company can do 30% more work. I don't have to hire any more headcount. So I've increased my leverage ratio in that business by 30%. And that's pure profit. So when we're talking about even like B2B projects, we think of them like a B2C product. Mm -hmm. I have to... I have to make this something that that individual would buy. They'll buy it with their time or, you know, I might ask them to be a beta tester. 
Um, I might ask, ask them to write a review that I would publish. So I might be asking them to, you know, transact their reputation or their time instead of money. But it is a, but it is a transaction. And then that little micro cycle, every time they're doing that value creating activity at the individual level, that goes, in, goes into the next cycle, which is usually something like revenue or, you know, cost savings. And then if you think about it from the geeky point of view, now that we live in like a data driven society, if you're, if you're actually able to track people's activities at an individual level and report upwards, then you're able, you're able to group those data points together, connect the dots and say, well, this is an insight. And then now when you're at the strategic level and you're saying, okay, where do we want to make our lighthouse just to wrap all this up? Like, you know, what's our 24 month roadmap like? Cause nobody's going to do five years. That's silly. <laughs> but what's our, what's our 24 month roadmap look like? And we say we have now like data and insights to, create predictive models that actually inform at a strategic level where the company is going. So that, that bottom up value creation is hardly ever done in practice because businesses sell to buyers Mm -hmm. and they don't put enough emphasis on the consumer. So I would like practically, I would say, go learn who who your consumer is. Um, If you don't know how to do that, there's a bunch of resources online. You can, or you can ping us and I'll tell you how to do it. I mean, a lot of times, it's overkill to hire an agency to do that. Lots of people can do it on their own. Um, and there's times where it's, it makes tons of sense too, but um, that shouldn't be a hurdle. You know, go learn who you, who your, your users are, learn who your customers are again, because I've changed. And then, you know, don't, don't go invest a bunch of money without doing that learning first, because you'll likely waste it. John, it sounds a lot like th- there's a book that I, I think I've talked about it on this podcast before. It's called Have You Heard of the Challenger Sale? I'm I'm aware of the Challenger sales model, yeah. What you described sounds really similar to that, where essentially the Challenger sales model says if you're working with a client um in a B2B space and you understand a problem that they have that they might not, not even know that they have, you do that by understanding deep insights about their business or their industry. And really importantly, who their end consumer is. And if you're able to explain to them, hey, you have this this problem that you might not even know that you have or that might be deeper or more negatively impactful than you realize. But then because you have that deep insight from the end consumer, you can also present a, a solution that solves that problem and is much more impactful. So it, it sounds to me like what, what you just said was similar to that framework. I'll, let me add to that a little bit because it's really helpful. And uh, so I would call that a latent problem. And we talked about problem types 30 minutes ago, but a latent problem is a problem you don't know that you have until I tell you. That's not as effective for a professional services firm as an active problem mm. for obvious reasons. They know they have a problem, mm-hmm. but they don't know how to fix it. Yep. But I would, I would think of it like you're, you're on the right track and I would think of it more like think of the scientific method, right? You run an experiment and there are no incorrect outcomes. Every outcome is a result. And so when you start a process where you have sort of a vaguely defined or even well-defined pain point, then you go explore that more. And when you talk to people, you're in what we call a divergent phase where you're going wide. There's no wrong answers. These people might internalize that pain point totally different than these people over here, you might find an even bigger pain point than you predicted. And you might have to rank those later to see what 
what pains you want to fix, or it might cause a pivot, but you don't care. You don't care what the outcome is. You just want, you want to run those experiments, you know, under, get that learning and there's no wrong answer. And then when you synthesize everything you've learned, you're going into a convergent stage, right? So now you're converging again and you're going to put a fine point on that and say, now this is like, I understand my customer's pain point now and this is what it is. Yep. And it's a period, not a question mark. And then you have to go through another divergent phase and say, well, what should the solution be? And this is like an ideation phase where, you know, everybody's, you know, brains are cranking and um, you're thinking hard about all these different things that, that could that could be a solution. And they're all guesses. And the nice thing is what we've learned is, and this is like not even Anthroware. I mean, this is a, a play that we use at Anthroware, but I think the um, kind of the design thinking double diamond came from IDEO. So there's a lot of, a lot of thought that's that's been put into these models. And once you've kind of gone wide again with all these different solutions, guess what? You go talk to your users again. Mm-hmm. And this time you present them not with a, hey, do you like it? But, you know, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll run a selling experiment where we say, all right, Mike, this isn't ready yet. It's going to be ready in three months. If you pre-order it right now, then I'll give you a discount for the first six months in return for one hour of your time, a quarter, so that we can just check in and get product feedback. So I'm asking you to buy it right now. You're going to write me a check or give me cash or a card or something. I'm, you're going to think that you're giving me money right then. And I'm asking for a sale of your time and, and maybe even your reputation. Like I might ask you to like, hey, if you love it, I'm going to put your name on my website, right? Kind of those currencies we talked about before. Mm-hmm. So when you run a selling experiment, a lot of times people get to that point, companies get to that point, and they say, what do you like about this? What do you not like about this? And people will tell you, but they are not product designers. And if they if they don't think they're buying it, then th- there's a high likelihood they're going to give you sort of a counterfeit or you know non-committal yes instead of a very committed yes. Mm-hmm. And when they hand you that money, you know for sure that that is a real signal that that product is something that they will actually buy. So... The, that type of learning in that second sort of converging phase where you're you're trying to make the rubber hit the road as fast as possible, we haven't written any code yet. This is all in a design phase. You can run, a, you know, 50 of these experiments really quickly. And then when you get to that point, you're like, okay, I, I know pretty much exactly what the pain point is. I've done all this research and now from a brand standpoint, I know how to talk to Mike. Yep. So that when I say this phrase, Mike has an emotional response because he feels that pain point. And then I show him the solution. And he's willing to buy it right now. Why don't we build that? And you've spent, you know, in comparison to rolling out a, a, a product, you know, 20% of the cost, you know, 15. And then you have to go through and actually design the full product and build it and release it on that. But you have so much better chance of success. So that design thinking and and sort of that that research model to get at that information in a way that you can then present and and you know stand behind your recommendations with real real reasons that are not because one of our consultants is so smart. It's because we've talked to all your, all your customers, all the people that are going to be using this and they would actually buy it. It's a much more powerful tool for stakeholder alignment on what, what is going into a scope. And then, you know, beyond that, you're actually, now it's, now it's building it. Now you're pouring concrete more than you were before. And that engagement, you know, changes uh, a little bit in, in its nature. And I love the human. It was a great question. Yeah, yeah, and and I love the human centered 
component there, right, is the way that insights are developed is through human interactions with real people where you can understand and diagnose real pain points in a way that's not artificial. Putting them in that real test sale environment is not just, hey, you know, we all have that tendency to want to tell people what we think they want to hear and Mm -hmm. forcing somebody to put their money where their mouth is literally and say, okay, write me a check uh, or I'm going to need to put your reputation. I I love uh, how you phrase that, that the reputational value is really testing that before you write a line of code. So don't over. So I, I think one of the other core messages there that totally resonates is don't over invest in infrastructure before you have a really good understanding of the deep or visceral emotional pain point of the end consumer. And if you, and, if you, can, and if you can understand that, okay, ho- holy cow, now, now we're cooking with gas. And to your point, consumers' pain points and their views of the world, they change rapidly. They certainly changed in a world where, you know, in the past 18 months or whatever, we've all been stuck inside a lot more. So that need for human-centered pain point discovery is so needed now. So I don't have anything more. I was just echoing the points that you said. Uh, yeah, thank emphatically. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This has been great. I think um, I think that we could probably chat with you, John, for um, about six more hours if you let us. But I realize that we're uh, we're at our time. So I do want to make sure before we before we cut off uh, that we tell our listeners how they can get in touch with Anthroware. So maybe you could tell us where people can find you on social media or on the web, uh, and then. Uh, we can share that also in the show notes so people have an actual written reference to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, anthroware.com. And, it, and and make sure you type in W-A-R-E. The other way you spell it is a totally different website that is not, it's not human-centered design. Um, but that, yeah, that's the easiest way. Contact form there. I'm on LinkedIn. And, you know, if you reference that you heard, you know, you heard this or, or that you know me somehow, I'm generally really good about wanting to connect and and talk to people. Um, that, those are the those are the two two best places to get us. Awesome. Well, we will put all of those links in our show notes so folks can find it. You don't have to worry about uh, how you type Anthroware. We'll we'll make sure it's in there. We'll also put those links in our social media posts. So remember to follow us on social media. If you have any questions for us or for John, you just use the hashtag Ask Teams, and we'll respond to those. And if we need to reach out to John to get a a more robust answer. We will also do that. So John, thank you so much for joining us this week. We, we have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And I I think, like I said, if I don't stop it now, I think we could probably make this like a, you know, a three part series. So we will, uh, we'll let you go for now, but you know, potentially invite you back for another, uh, another session of data analytics with Mike. (laughs) I, I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thanks. And before we log off, Make sure to, wherever you're listening, give us a thumbs up, uh, give us a comment. Uh, and to Tracy's point, if you have uh, any questions, feel free to reach out to us and, and we'd be happy to engage with you that way. Uh, and while you're at it, give us a share with your friends and family or, or your coworkers or, or whoever. But um, we, we'd love if you can uh, continue to share the Building Teams with Teams & Co podcast. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. See ya. You've been listening to Building Teams with Teams & Co. To learn more about the latest thinking on how to empower your team to deliver exceptional results or to book a consultation, please visit us at teamsandco.com or follow us at LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.
Mention of particular products or services and participation of a guest does not imply an endorsement by Teams & Co. The information provided is for educational and entertainment purposes and should not be taken as professional advice.